You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Bernie's campaign and the campaigns that have followed his should show that there is also a, a way to do electoral politics that is actually spurring more class struggle, not tamping it down. Marxism is all about both the objective conditions that you face, as well as the subjective efforts you can make to change the world. Good Marxism, in my opinion, always focuses on doing both of those things. What opportunities the objective conditions present to you, but also what you as an individual can do swimming outside the tides of history. On Labor Wave Radio, we had a conversation with Micah Utrich, the managing editor at Jacobin Magazine and host of the Vast Majority podcast. Our conversation focuses on the new title, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, which Micah Utrich co-authored with Megan Day. In Bigger Than Bernie, the writers give us an intimate map of the emerging movement to remake American politics from top to bottom, profiling grassroots organizers who are building something bigger and more ambitious than the career of any one candidate. As participants themselves, Day and Utrich provide a serious analysis of the prospects for long-term change, offering a strategy for making political revolution more than just a campaign slogan. We got an opportunity to talk with Utrich about this book and discuss more in detail what the short, mid, and long-term road to socialism looks like in the midst of this pandemic, as well as the broader political implications of it. The book was published early by Verso Books. And you can get it for a discounted rate currently at both Jacobin Magazine and Verso Books. So go to those websites to get a very generous discount on the book. Labor Wave also has an episode coming up with Gianpaolo Biocchi on the political party after the revolution. Anticipate that episode coming out in the coming weeks. And we are continuing to host an online book club where we're discussing the title Feminism for the 99%. And we'll be following it up with other titles and other conversations in order to keep us socially connected in this time of physical distancing. All of the information you need for how to join and participate in the online book club are available on our website, laborwaveradio.com. And we also encourage you to please share our content, like us, and follow us on platforms like Facebook, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Twitter, and more. At the time of this recording, the book that you co-authored with Megan Day, it's called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, was just released. So there hasn't been much opportunity for people to engage with the content yet. Because of that, I wanted to just go ahead and give you the opportunity to lay out some of the main arguments of the book. My understanding is that it's largely an argument about how the democratic road to socialism is a possibility. So can you elaborate more on that and maybe talk about some other key highlights from the book? Well, I would say that the main impetus for writing the book is the knowledge that you will also hear from Bernie Sanders himself, that the election of Bernie Sanders, obviously at this point, it looks like is going to be unlikely. But even when we thought it might have been likely, that was never the 
panacea, uh, the one the one weird trick of uh, fixing the myriad uh, social, political, economic problems we face. That uh, Bernie Sanders has always argued that there needs to be. I mean, his campaign slogan for twenty twenty is "Not me, us." Right? That there needs to be a broader movement beyond the election of a single figure like Bernie, or even a number of uh, electoral figures like Bernie. There needs to be a movement of millions of people, working class people, uh, to change the world. And we take that seriously. Um, It's also what sets Bernie Sanders apart from any other American politician in recent history. That he, it's not like there is a spectrum of, you know, left right politics. And Bernie just happens to be a little more left on that spectrum than some of the other people that we would consider progressives. It's also that he he conceives of social change happening in a different way than you hear uh, articulated by any other mainstream politician. So we wanted to write this book to talk about what is special about Bernie, what we have learned about American politics from his campaigning. Uh, and then also take stock of what kind of movement activity he has inspired. And we focus on mostly electoral campaigns that have been run that are clearly inspired by his candidacy. And then also grassroots movement organizing that's been inspired by his candidacy, especially through the Democratic Socialists of America, but also for Movement for a Green New Deal and uh, in the labor movement and in, in for affordable housing uh, and all of all of the rest of it. Uh, and we're, you know, we're partisans in, in this fight. We're not just neutral journalists chronicling it, although we think that it's useful to just collect the basic information about that stuff. But we also want to see those movements succeed. So the, I guess the other part of the book is the uh, strategic uh, argument that we're making about what this movement, what, what the us of the not me us should be doing uh, in, the, in the short and medium and long term. And so that includes, as I mentioned, sort of how we should think about and engage in the labor movement, how we should run electoral campaigns, the value of having a socialist organization like the Democratic Socialists of America, why that's important. And we, you know, we end with a a call for people to join that movement if they're not already a part of it. We tried to write the book in a way that was accessible both to people who are already part of that movement, or maybe they're familiar with some of the, the basics of what's gone on in the socialist movement in recent years. Uh, and so we wrote it you know, in a way that, the, that people who already had that baseline understanding would find useful and hope, hopefully probing and challenging, but also pitch towards people who are just excited about Bernie's campaigns and want to know what they should do next. I want to ask more questions about what you were saying about what we do in the short, mid, and long term. But before getting into that, I kind of want to zoom out a little bit and just think about the strategy in a broad sense, because I know that there is many people on the left who critique the strategy of like engaging in the state arena or electoral campaigns as in and of itself undermining the possibility for independent working class mass organization and organizing that's successful. What do you all offer in terms of that critique and how do you respond to that? I don't think that that critique should be you know, totally tossed out the window. I think that argument has some merit and we speak in the book to the, the parts of it that do have merit. For example, the, the pitfalls of engaging in 
electoral politics. It's, it's, you know, people who say that the electoral politics of the Democratic Party in particular have been a, a graveyard of social movements of independent working class activity are not totally wrong about that. But it's also true that what those people have often posited as the alternative hasn't really worked out either, uh, where you don't engage with electoral politics at all. In fact, that has been a major part of what was dominant on the American left for many decades. And that didn't really get us in anywhere. Looking at the Bernie Sanders campaign, it is very clear that his campaign has helped stimulate class struggle in America. It has helped spur working class self-activity. It has led to more strikes, more protests. It's led to people being uh, more comfortable with the idea that we need to take the, that kind of independent working class action at the same time that we also need to be fighting to elect somebody like Bernie Sanders or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the half a dozen socialist city council members in Chicago where I live or all of the many elections that uh, socialists have run for and, and, and in some cases been successful in over the years. I don't think anybody can really say that we're at a lower level of class struggle right now than we were before Bernie's first campaign. His campaign has spurred more of that kind of organizing. And so in order to continue doing that, in order to continue to use elections to spur more of that kind of activity, uh, we have to go about elections in a, in a particular way. And we've learned from Bernie the, the kinds of possibilities that are out there that maybe a, a lot of the people who were skeptical of electoral activity didn't think were possible to do before. I mean, it is possible to run a campaign for uh, elected office and name and shame capitalist enemies, you know, uh, talk about the, you know, the, the distinct interest between the working class and that of the capitalist class. It's possible to run electoral campaigns that are actually build movement infrastructure that can be used for non-electoral purposes. We have a whole section on that in our case study of the East Bay in California, uh, running uh, someone named Javanka Beckles for the uh, state assembly in California and losing that campaign, but using the infrastructure that came out of the campaign to then support the Oakland teachers when they went on strike last year. I don't want to say that people are totally wrong to point out the pitfalls of electoral politics. They're certainly correct to, to point out those pitfalls in electoral politics as we knew them previous to Bernie, but Bernie's campaign and the campaigns that have followed his should show that there is also a, a way to do electoral politics uh, that is actually spurring more class struggle, not tamping it down. And something that you all wrote that was excerpted in, I believe, Salon that I appreciate it was just kind of a passing remark about state power and how when the state was weaker, like in the moment of the Russian Revolution, it was possible to kind of pose these insurrectionary moments that just toppled the government and overthrew the state. Sounds like you all are basically putting forth that the state is more powerful today. And it's not really a possibility to just completely avoid it and ignore it in this independent fashion that some people kind of romanticize. Would you agree with that assessment or is that what you're trying to communicate? Yeah, I mean, in the case of something like Russia in 1917 or Cuba in 1959, the state was not seen as a, a legitimate body. It was not as, as firmly entrenched in you know, Russian or Cuban society in the way that the U.S. state is now. 
Uh, and so you could do something like in 1917, you could storm the Winter Palace and you could topple the czarist government and the state would fall if you, if you did that. You know, we should, we should be serious and sober about the situation that we're in now. That's not going to happen in the, in the United States. If we were to storm the White House and toss Donald Trump out onto the front lawn, as much as that might be kind of cathartic to do, uh, it, it probably wouldn't uh, really get us to where we want to go. And I'm kind of grateful for that. I mean, I don't want to go through, you know, the Russian Civil War. Like, I don't, <laughs> that sucks. If anybody is familiar with that history, it's not fun. That was like grinding misery for uh, years. Uh, it's, not, it's not good. So there are opportunities for us to use the, the existing democratic process, such as it is, to uh, advance the socialist project. And we, we take great pains in the rest of the book to say that, of course, that doesn't mean that capitalists are just going to let you, you know, use these, these small d democratic mechanisms that we have to fundamentally reorder our society. In fact, if you look at historical examples like in Chile in 1973, or France under François Mitterrand, or uh, Sweden in the 1970s, the capitalist class will mobilize in ways that are not the full-out whites versus red, reds, Russian Civil War. Um, so we need to be cognizant and sober about those kinds of uh, uh, pushbacks that we'll receive, that capitalists will engage in. But yeah, we, we want to fundamentally use uh, the existing democratic processes, and also just do democratic organizing in the broadest sense, like you know, Ralph Miliband, the, the uh, late British Marxist uh, thinker, wrote about how you know if revolution is to have a, a uh, chance in the in the 20th century when he was writing, and certainly in the 21st century today, uh, it will be through doing real you know mass democratic organizing of millions of people. You can't just like have sort of small cadres of people carrying out socialist organizing and, and think that that'll be enough. We, we need to do real mass uh, democratic organizing of, of millions of people. The Sanders campaign has shown us that that kind of organizing is possible. It's also shown, obviously, the extent to which the media establishment, the Democratic Party establishment, and all the rest will move heaven and earth to try to destroy that kind of candidacy. But uh, we, we've seen that there are opportunities uh, to use uh, existing democratic processes to advance a socialist agenda through the Bernie campaign and through everything that's happened uh, since he first ran in 2016. Speaking back to what you were just saying about the crisis of legitimacy that like the Russian state suffered in 1917, I have been wondering about why this moment in time has enabled Bernie Sanders to kind of rise to more prominence than what would have been feasible even in like 2008 or 2012. And partly, I think the election of Donald Trump did create kind of a moment of the crisis of legitimacy for at least a lot of liberals and progressives. But I'm also wondering right now, we're, in this, the, we're at the moment of this recording, we're right at the very early stages of a pandemic. And this is another crisis of legitimacy that has exposed just how incapable our state apparatus really is of like supporting and preserving the lives of people in this moment and our healthcare industry. And I mean, if anybody's not for Medicare for all right now, I just don't even know what world they're in. And also, so this is kind of another thought that I've had. I've been ruminating on the idea of like, you know, there was a while where I thought Bernie Sanders was going to probably be the nominee and the president. And I wondered about the implications of that. But now I'm like, fairly convinced that Biden is going to be the nominee and is going to lose. And then I wonder, like, what does that do for the Democratic Party? Will that just completely invalidate them for people and create this crisis of legitimacy that then enables mass movements to kind of take over more? 
I don't know. Those are just a lot of like rambling thoughts I have. What do you think about any of that? To your first point about the difference between now and like 2008 or 2012, in general, in the book, we, we talk about how, I mean, we have a chapter, the first chapter of the book is on, on Bernie, and it's just sort of like tracking his biography along with the rise and fall of social movements throughout his lifetime. And we talk about how he was a product of his historical circumstances. You know, he uh, engaged in the civil rights movement, uh, and that obviously stamped his thinking very strongly along with his political education in a socialist group, the Young People's Socialist League. He, he was kind of with the tides of history in terms of being engaged in the social movements of his age. But then he sort of swam against the tides of history starting in the 70s and certainly through the 80s and 90s and 2000s, where he's mayor of Burlington and then going into the, to Congress. And Marxism is all about both the objective conditions that you face as well as the subjective efforts you can make to change the world. Good Marxism, in my opinion, uh, always focuses on doing on, on both of those things. What opportunities the objective conditions present to you, uh, but also what you as an individual can do, you know, swimming outside the tides of history, perhaps. And all of this is kind of a long-winded way of saying that I think that, of course, the, the Bernie moment, uh, especially like after 2008, I mean, 2008 happened. And it just was a real crisis of legitimacy for our economic system. But of course, you know, the left was not ascendant at that time. The ideas that were laying around to respond to that crisis were largely provided by the right. And so then people got, you know, eventually got angry about that. Something like Occupy Wall Street in 2011. But that had resonance because of the expanding inequality in our society, the bailouts that had happened just a few years earlier. But all that energy kind of dissipated into the air. It never really cohered into a kind of a credible challenge to the status quo. And so Bernie, I think the reason why he had so much resonance when he, when he came to run in 2016 uh, was that those objective conditions were all there. But because he is this sort of unique figure in American political history, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody really like him in all of American political history. He, because he, he, you know, ran, he, he was where he was in the Senate in 2016 and put forward a, a, a politics that was very much not in vogue at the time, right? Like in 2016 or, or you know, 2015, when he first started running, Democratic socialism was not on the national agenda. You still would have kind of laughed somebody like that out of the room. Uh, I was an editor at Jackman at the time, and I had just made my peace with the fact that I was going to be toiling in obscurity for the rest of my life, and nobody would ever, you know, actually uh, find any resonance with the stuff I was putting forward. I was putting it forward because it's the right thing to do, but not because uh, it would actually make an impact on the world. And lo and behold, Bernie's campaign is able to. Uh, cohere, you know, a, a critique of the system that it's based on people's rage at the objective conditions they're facing. But he says, you know, let's let's funnel some of that energy into a campaign for the presidency. And in doing so, he puts democratic socialism back on the national agenda and inspires people like AOC to run for office and, and leads to the total rebirth and rejuvenation of the democratic socialists of America. Uh, and all the rest of it that, that, that we know about. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but that, that is sort of a long-winded way of, of talking about what I think is uh, unique and uh, important about Bernie 
and um, how his own sort of unique subjective character characteristics uh, helped produce the moment that we're in and helped pull people together around an alternative political and economic vision and an alternative one that certainly is it has not won by no one would argue that but I think is in pretty good shape in terms of gathering momentum and, and, and gaining power and, and gaining legitimacy and, and gaining new people who are, who are buying into its arguments. And I think that that movement that he has helped cohere is in a good place uh, moving forward uh, to be successful in the, in the short and medium and long term. I do want to return to the like thought experiment about what happens to the Democratic Party when they lose this next election. But before getting into that, let's talk a little bit more about this short midterm and long-term strategy. I do want to express resonance with what you were just saying about how you thought that your life was going to be just marginality and writing into obscurity. And I have a, a similar experience in that it's been kind of wild to me to now be able to speak openly and frankly about socialism and some of my like more radical politics without people looking at me like I'm from outer space. Very different uh, than it was <laughs> not, not too long ago, honestly. So I, I appreciate that. But you were talking about the East Bay State Assembly campaign and as that offering like a concrete example of like the short-term strategy. So could you speak a little bit more about what that campaign was and how it embodies the short-term strategies that you think are available right now for us? That section, uh, unsurprisingly, was written by Megan, who lives in the East Bay and participated in that campaign. But uh, they ran a, uh, a woman who was a local city council member in the city of Richmond, California, which is in the Bay Area. They ran her for a state assembly, and she had come from the Richmond uh, Progressive Alliance, which is a whole long history uh, to that organization. Steve Early wrote this great book called Refinery Town that was about the Richmond Progressive Alliance, which was a kind of left electoral effort that was that has been going since before Bernie Sanders' campaign. So, you know, if people who are interested in this could look, look his book up. It's excellent. But so they ran her, and she's a social worker, rank and file, union member, uh, black, queer, Latina, immigrant woman. Uh, against uh, someone named Buffy Wicks, who was a, I think, the California state director for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, nicknamed B uh, Buffy the Bernie Slayer, <laughs> uh, which gives you some insight into what, what she's all about. And just, uh, you know, they were, they were, the DSA there was running this, this woman who, who was a city council member and rank and file union member and all these things and really embodied longstanding you know, progressive left political energy in the area against this really classic centrist political hack in California. And uh, they ran a really valiant campaign. And actually, I visited East Bay uh, once while, while the campaign was in full swing. And there were just, you could just tell both in hanging out with East Bay DSA members and through driving around the Bay Area, it's like Oakland and Berkeley, how you know, you'd see signs everywhere. I mean, people were just on fire for this campaign. And uh, the campaign lost, which is not really surprising given the kind of power and money that, that Buffy Wicks had. But in going all in in this campaign and creating this kind of campaign infrastructure through the East Bay DSA in, in running Buffy, uh, what they ended up doing is very shortly afterwards, after the election was over, they had an opportunity to put all of that infrastructure to use in supporting the Oakland teacher strike. And I shared a panel at last year's socialism conference in Chicago that was just about how socialists engaged with that Oakland teacher strike. And it was very clear that the East Bay DSA 
was was the most important outside the organization outside of the union to marshal support for uh, that strike. I mean, any you know, you name it, they they were doing it. I mean, they were like sending socialists out on roving picket squads at six in the morning to beef up uh, picket lines. They were. Uh, going all through the city, I, I accompanied uh, Megan and her partner actually putting up signs at local businesses saying we support Oakland teachers. Uh, they spearheaded the art, uh, you know, the, the designing of signs uh, that, that were like ubiquitous throughout uh, protest. I mean, they did a million different things that were used to support and beef up this, uh, this militant uh, teacher strike. Uh, and so that's the kind of example of, uh, you know, and there's, there's, there's more details there, obviously, in terms of how they ran that campaign. I mean, they were, they, they focused very hard on naming class enemies and talking about austerity and, and, you know, using an electoral campaign as purposefully as a way to build strength for future, you know, grassroots movements fights. That didn't just happen accidentally. It was a product of how they chose to uh, run their state assembly campaign. And so, you know, the, the campaign was not a kind of one-off effort in which all of the time and energy that all these people had put into the campaign just disappeared afterwards, but it, it, it continued to uh, be used in, in future non-electoral campaigns. And that's how, that's, it's a small example, just one state assembly race in California, but that's one example of how we should be doing these kinds of uh, campaigns going forward. An example of how electoral politics can be used to strengthen movements rather than weaken them. Yeah, so in that example, it sounds like the short-term strategic opportunity is to use elections to build infrastructure and then utilize that infrastructure to deploy support for local class struggle battles, which that sounds like a good example of providing like case study of how that works. How do you think that then leverages into like more of a midterm strategy? Like what do you do after that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, uh, to continue with the California example, which is again the one that I'm, that Megan is more of an expert on than me. But there's there's many pieces of of both of those struggles to uh, to talk about. I mean, I would not be surprised if they run Javanka Beckles again for another office, uh, and we'll you know continue to try to get her uh, elected to higher office. Maybe when Buffy Wicks goes on to run for house or whatever uh, on her, on her march towards uh, becoming president of the United States. I don't know, but they, they gained this kind of electoral expertise that they can use to support, uh, to support Javanka and other people in their uh, in, in East Bay DSA who might decide to run for office. Uh, they, they forged real relationships with the Oakland education association, the Oakland teachers union that showed that they were, reliable allies uh, in, uh, you know, they, they could be called upon to, you know, put boots on the ground uh, and, and devote their time and energy towards supporting those struggles. People became teachers uh, around that time because they were, they were inspired. I mean, they, they, they had the idea, East Bay DSA members had the idea that they could be, become rank and file teachers and join in these kinds of struggles uh, in, in the future. So, you know, in terms of the, of, of the medium term, I mean, in longer term, people saw opportunities to continue what they had done and expand it in, in both the electoral realm and the social movement realm. I think they also established themselves generally in the Bay Area as a, a political force to be reckoned with in, in politics generally. I mean, they showed that a DSA is not 
some kind of armchair socialist organization that that is sort of taking pot shots at the the capitalists and the the neoliberal Democrats from the sidelines. They're actually in in the mix out in the streets uh, fighting those kinds of forces. And so it left them with the kind of longer term infrastructure that that can be used to to wage more class struggle, both at the uh, the ballot box and in the streets. My impression of the book on the surface and what I've been able to read from it is that your long-term strategy doesn't necessarily require victories at the presidential level, or at least a victory for Bernie Sanders. Is that an accurate assessment, or how important is it to win for the long term, those kind of like major elections at the state level, like for president, senators, and so forth? Well, the left has a long history of trying to console itself when we lose, because we lose most of the time. And so we say, well, at least we learned, we taught some lessons, we educated people on social. I mean, we always got this sort of positive spin, right, in the, in the face of, of defeats. And I don't want to be dishonest and, and spin uh, defeats into actually they were victories. And I guess I should just say that, of course, the fact that Bernie looks like he will not win the presidency is a crushing defeat that we should really parse the lessons of and, and et cetera. That's, that's a very bad thing that Bernie is uh, looking like he's going to not win the presidency. I would like him to win the presidency. But I also think that we should zoom out and think about where we are right now. Like, it is not weird that the democratic establishment and mainstream media and the capitalist class successfully stopped an insurgent democratic socialist presidential candidate. That's not weird. Like what's weird is that at a time when democratic socialism was still anathema, when you would still be subject to red baiting, when, when socialism would get you laughed out of the room, as, as you and I both well know, in 2015, 2016, within just a couple of years, that ideology and a cranky old Jewish socialist guy who doesn't comb his hair and you know buys his suits from Kohl's or whatever came extremely close to winning the presidency. Like That's amazing. That's an incredible thing that was accomplished within a very short amount of time. And not only did he manage to do that, but he helped spark a movement that is now playing this really essential role. I mean, you know, I just talked about the East Bay example. There's one example across this entire country. You know, there, there's, there's dozens and hundreds of similar examples across this country. So it, it, it sucks to lose, but in terms of our, our longer-term prospects, I mean, it, we, we should, should have known from the beginning that this is a really a, a long-distance race. I mean, uh, and, and we should think about other potential historical analogies. I mean, you know, I'm sure in 1964, when Barry Goldwater lost the nomination for the Republican presidency, the, uh, you know, the foaming at the mouth, reactionary young <laughs> Republicans uh, were, were devastated and, and felt like their whole world had been shattered. But of course, now we know that a decade and a half later that uh, the Goldwater campaign would translate into the Reagan presidency, which would, of course, totally reshape politics for decades to come. So, you know, it's, it's too soon to predict that, that Bernie's going to be our Goldwater, but it's certainly not inconceivable that that could be the case. And we should, we should act accordingly. I mean, like, the, the people who lost in 1964 didn't, you know, fold up their, their tables and, and toss out their, their reactionary lit and uh, go home. They, they doubled down their efforts because they uh, made more progress than they thought they probably ever could before that campaign. 
and it ended up paying off for them. So uh, we should uh, we should do the same, but you know, with the interests of the vast majority of humanity in mind, rather than destroying working class power and attacking you know gay people and women and whatever else that the the Goldwater people did. So I think we're in a good position to do that going forward, and people. You know, people should should take their time to mourn the the Bernie campaign, but they should also take that you know thirty thousand foot view and realize that we're we're in pretty good shape going forward. And uh, now is the time to keep pushing on this stuff because we now have a toehold in American politics, and we should take that toehold and we should you know climb up to the next level. I want to ask a two part question here. What do you think is changed, or what does the current pandemic require us to do in terms of a response and in terms of a democratic road to socialism strategic viewpoint? Like how does this pandemic kind of reveal changes in our strategy? And then after addressing that, I'm curious to just consider thinking again about the upcoming presidential election and an election that I feel fairly confident will be won by Trump. So what happens when Trump wins again and how does that like create openings potentially in the Democratic Party because maybe it won't have any legitimacy for liberals and progressives and the left in general anymore? So the first question, how the pandemic changes our strategy. I mean, obviously, this is the $64,000 question uh, that I should, I, as somebody who wrote a, just wrote a book, I should act like I'm totally confident in my uh, projections about what that strategy should look like. But Well, thank you for not being pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like everybody else, I'm just like, what the hell? I don't know what we're going to do here. I mean, uh, you know, the lifeblood of left politics is getting together in public spaces and, you know, getting together with comrades and debating issues and uh, making, you know, protest signs and going out to protest and going on strike and all that stuff, all, all of which is some ways on hold right now. But of course, the, the pandemic does create new opportunities. I mean, for one thing, you know, just this week alone, we have seen that the level of working class militancy is just through the roof right now because people rightly understand that their lives are at stake. I mean, just this week alone, we've heard about what Amazon walkouts, Instacart walkouts, GE workers demanding that their factory retool to, to um, produce ventilators. Uh, I mean, there, there are a million, I, there's a New York Times uh, op-ed that rounds up everything. It's like literally dozens of workers who are going on these wildcat strikes. So, and, and then also healthcare workers in places like Oakland, like staging protests saying that their public hospitals have been decimated by austerity. Uh, and, and the most obvious point of all, of course, that the pandemic really shows why we need Medicare for all. The fact that we have a for-profit health system has left us totally unable to respond to this crisis. I mean, the, the Medicare for all piece in particular, obviously that was the most important issue of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And that's the one that we have made the most progress on in terms of winning the American people over to our side. And that we can't bang the drum enough about that right now in the middle of this pandemic. I mean, because so much of the response to the pandemic really grates against a lot of people's basic sense of humanity and, and you know what's right and wrong when they hear that there are for-profit health companies that are profiteering off of the crisis or people are being denied treatment for coronavirus because they don't have insurance. All of these things are just like mind-bogglingly horrific. Uh, and they they make the case for Medicare for all for us. So 
I think we need to do everything we can to exploit the, the moment to uh, continue putting that demand for Medicare for all forward. And then also, we've seen that, you know, left elected officials like Alan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, are, they are taking the demands of the left and really in- injecting them into the mainstream, talking about the need to suspend rent payments uh, at a time when people are, you know, having mass unemployment. You know, the kinds of stimulus that are being discussed are piddly in comparison to countries, even like the UK, which is under a conservative government. They're talking, they're providing workers' income at enormous levels in ways that we are not doing. So there are all kinds of obvious and blatantly immoral and wrong responses to this pandemic that I think if it falls upon uh, socialists to say that we have a we have another solution for what this could look like. We have credible idea about what a better society might look like. And that, you know, there's not an alternative that is being put forward by the Democrats, the so-called opposition party. Um, that So this really falls to, all, to us to, to carry that out. And then your second question was, uh, you know, what happens when Trump wins again? I mean, this is this is a part of an argument that we make in the book for why we should, despite the shortcomings of the Democratic Party, despite the fact that they are a fundamentally capitalist party, why it is useful to engage with them in the kind of combative way that Bernie and others like AOC have done. Uh, because even if we don't, you know, win these elections, we're, we're just sort of showing the the total bankruptness of these of these parties of this party. I mean, fact. I think for millions of people who are paying attention to the Democratic race, they see someone like Bernie, who is putting forward demands for things like Medicare for all. Clearly, has it. You know, he's he's got a, a steadfast moral vision and a plan for the country. And then they look at the corpse that they are that Bernie is up against, who the entire establishment is mobilizing to try to destroy Bernie to try to do a like weekend at Bernie's style uh, campaign with Joe Biden, you know, propping up this corpse of a, of a man. Uh, and, and they'd rather see the corpse run against Trump than uh, to see a guy who wants healthcare and free higher education for everybody. I mean, that's a very revealing thing for millions of people. It shows how craven these democratic officials are and how they really don't have the best interest of humanity in mind. And so I think that through doing that and sort of heightening those contradictions within the Democratic Party will open up new opportunities for ourselves in the future. Of course, the risk there is that if we can't rise to the occasion and actually provide the, the alternative to the you know Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's of the world, then it will rebound, rebound for Trump. I mean, Trump will just be able to He'll he'll be the main beneficiary of that, and we will, you know, we, we always say that it's sort of socialism or barbarism, and uh, there are new opportunities for socialism, but there are also through the, the continued demonstration of the bankruptcy of the Democrats, new opportunities for barbarism too. Absolutely. Well, I want to get us to a conclusion here, and the final question I want to ask you, going back to the kind of Goldwater example you provided. That moment in time for the Republican Party was like kind of a strategic opportunity that showed them a pathway forward, run this insurgent reactionary person from the right of the majority of the party. And then it like opens up the possibility of making that the norm. And what people articulate now is the Southern strategy of just shoring up a local elections, local elections for sheriff and, you know, state Congress people and so forth to basically build a mass, appar- a mass apparatus at the base 
to make the presidential and like bigger elections easier to like win. What you were suggesting is maybe Bernie could become the Goldwater for us. And I want to hear a little bit more about that. But also, I imagine there's a lot of folks that worry about that strategy in the sense of time. Like, do we really have the time for this kind of strategic viewpoint? Particularly, like, not even just in the pandemic moment, but the pandemic, I think, really heightens that sense of urgency, as well as the climate crisis that we're already witnessing and all the other heightened contradictions of capitalism. Barbarism seems right at the door, if not already inside the house. So do we have time for this kind of strategic viewpoint? Everybody, of course, is worried about time, as they should be, given the impending catastrophe of climate change, or the already here catastrophe of of climate change. But as I said, this kind of strategic orientation has borne a lot of fruit in a very short period of time through the Bernie campaign. I mean, worth just saying again that like, you know, four and a half years ago, there was no DSA. There was like socialism was not being uh, debated as a valuable and, and, and worth, or, you know, it was not seen as something that needed to be responded to and shot down in mainstream publications, which is what it is now, right? Like every other day, you know, Politico or the Atlantic or whoever, the, the guardians of mainstream political thought are, are feeling the need to uh, try to shoot down socialists, New York Times. And that's a good sign. That means that we have broken through uh, on some level. And I also just don't think we have another option. I mean, we were just way out in the wilderness for decades uh, in the period when the left had decided to reject any engagement with uh, the state. And it, it, it meant that the, that the state was basically uh, uncontested between, you know, horrible centrist neoliberal democratic hacks and absolutely craven uh, foaming at the mouth reactionary Republicans. That's a pretty bleak situation to be in. So I think that if we are going to save our planet, our society from the many catastrophes that we're facing, we have to be vying for power. And, and that doesn't mean that we need to just like do the slowest individual person by person kind of base building. I mean, that stuff's important, obviously. But, but Bernie uh, showed that like, great leaps are possible in short amounts uh, of, of time. And so let's, uh, let's keep, you know, let's keep leaping. Possibilities are there through this kind of politics that we've seen through Bernie and that we've seen through the DSA to actually save ourselves from catastrophe. You know, the, the, the worst case scenarios are, are by no means written in stone and we really can change our society and, and the world. So we should do it. Before we conclude, do you have any final words or things that you just want to say for our listeners? The book was written for a couple purposes. I mean, one, to try to get people who were just, as I mentioned before, interested in the Bernie cam- in Bernie and the Bernie campaign, but sort of didn't know what to do afterwards. And we are making the argument, you know, don't get dejected. There is this vibrant movement. We take stock of what that movement has done over the last couple of years. And we say, like, you know, don't get, don't get disheartened, like join this movement. And uh, you know, Megan and I are both active participants in this new socialist movement. We've been active in both, uh, you know, electoral and non-electoral fights uh, over the last couple of years. And obviously, we think that that is a most pressing political task. But we also have found great 
joy and companionship and friendship and love with people through engaging in that kind of struggle. We've, we've gotten great meaning in our lives from, from joining the socialist movement and engaging in all kinds of working class fights. So uh, at the risk of sounding sappy, I mean, you know, we, we, people should, people should uh, you know, they can find that kind of meaning and joy and love uh, through struggle. I mean, it's not always easy. You have to, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America is a robustly democratic organization, which uh, is both good and sometimes uh, maddening. Uh, so you have to, you know, learn how to deal with people you disagree with and, and maybe people you don't like. But that's the stuff of democratic politics. And for us, there's, there's no other way that we would rather uh, live our lives than, than living our lives and, and struggle that way. It's, it's a good way to live. So we uh, encourage other people to do it too. Our guest has been Micah Utrich. Managing editor at Jacobin Magazine and the co-author with Megan Day of the recently released Verso book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. Thanks so much for being on Labor Wave and really appreciate your time and hope you're staying safe and healthy. Yeah, same to you and uh, thanks for having me on.